As we continue our study of Acts chapter 21, Paul is called by God to go to Jerusalem, but everyone else is warning him about the trouble that awaits. And as we begin today, Pastor David is giving us some practical things to consider when someone feels called to do something. Here's Pastor David. So here are a couple things to look for if a brother or sister in Christ is saying they have a call to go do something. This is, this is just some practical stuff for you. The first question I would ask is, is it biblical? Is the thing they've been called to do consistent with Scripture? Is it biblical? Okay. Maybe it involves difficulty, but if it's consistent with Scripture, then it, it may be okay. Um, so that's why, for instance, my call to be a lawyer was very questionable, right? Um, I'm not sure that it's biblical to be a lawyer, but that's a, come on, that's funny, guys. That's, that's all I've got for you today. Um, all right, I'll try harder. We've got a lot more here, so I'll, I'll do better. Um, for instance, if somebody says, I feel called to leave my spouse because we fell out of love, and it's just coincidentally, I met this person online, and they're really my soulmate, and God would want me to be happy, right? God would call me to be happy. Um, no. <laughs> Wrong answer. Not biblical, not consistent with Scripture. You should talk your brother or sister in Christ out of that. Okay? Because that's not biblical. That's not consistent with Scripture. So if that's their call, they're wrong about that. Okay? So go ahead and persuade them not to do that. Persuade them hard not to do that. Um, but a call to the mission field or a call to move to another place to work where the Lord has called them, it very well may be biblically consistent. Okay? And so, so that's the first thing I would look at. Next, I would ask yourself this. Is the person that you're dealing with shown consistently that they're hearing from the Lord and that they're walking with the Lord? Okay. Are they hearing from the Lord consistently? Are they following the Lord consistently? Is that what you've seen as a pattern in your life? Of course, in Paul's case, we have that. Paul is regularly, consistently living in the Spirit, hearing from the Spirit, and, and operating in his ministry on what the Spirit has called him to do. So there's really no question about whether Paul is consistently hearing from the Spirit. But if your brother or sister in Christ says they're called to do something which seems unwise, it's fair for you to look at their lifestyle and what's going on to see if, in fact, they've shown a propensity to hear from the Lord. The next thing I would look at is, is there an, a, a strange amount of rush on the thing that they say they feel called to do? And is there a lack of seeking godly counsel? So if the person is, has not sought out the counsel of other mature believers or they're determined to do this thing like immediately right now, those are red flags. Those are red flags. And so, um, did, you know, did they ask you to pray through the process with them to help them confirm this call from the Lord? When I feel called to come here, um, you know, Tiffany and I dedicated 30 days to confirm the call. I felt called, but we wanted to make sure it wasn't bad sausage, right? Um, because, you know, things can happen. So we set aside time to confirm the call. I think it ended up being more than 30 days by the time that the Lord actually confirmed the call for us. But it took that time, right? At the same time, we were in relationship with other believers, real serious relationship. We had other godly counselors around us. We were in a good home group, and, and we had followed the Lord in the past. We got there in the first place by following the Lord, right? Uh, I ended up in law school by following the Lord. We, we'd follow the Lord in the past, not always perfectly, which is actually part of the learning process of knowing how to follow the Lord. And so there was evidence that when the Lord called us to do something, it was what we were called to do. But if you don't see that in the person's life, it's worth pausing. It's worth walking through with them. 
with your brother or sister and trying to confirm whether or not the call that they're saying they have is a real call, okay? Um, there, there's an instance of this that's kind of classic uh, in, say, Christian colleges or Christian uh, uh, singles groups or young people groups where a guy will come to a girl and say, hey, uh, I just really feel called by the Lord that you and I are supposed to be married. Um, that's just the call I feel from the Lord, right? Uh, and, and so that's sort of a classic thing. And, and for instance, you know, that's what I did uh, with Tiffany. Um, so it works, guys. No, I'm totally kidding. She said it to me. <clears throat> anyway, um, no, no, that didn't happen. Here's the thing, ladies. If a guy comes up to you and says that to you, I just feel that the Lord has called me to marry you and us to be together, just say back to this guy, hey, listen, that is nice that you feel called to marry me, and as soon as the Lord calls me to marry you, I'll let you know. <laughs> don't hold your breath, okay? Um, that's just a weak pickup line, okay? Um, don't use the Lord in that way. But in this case, right, Paul has to, because they're, they're breaking his heart, he has to reaffirm his commitment to follow through on what the Lord has called him to do, to go to Jerusalem. <sighs> and his brothers and sisters in Christ were not necessarily being helpful He's kind of on his own at some level to, to maintain his resolve, but he does do that. They don't persuade him. And once, and once they realize he's not going to be persuaded, they get over it, and they, and they get behind him. Okay? They get behind him, um, and they give it over to the will of the Lord. Let the Lord's will be done, and they support him. Let's look at the next couple of verses, 15 and 16. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. I do not know how to say that name. I actually looked it up online. There were, multi, there were different things about how to say it. I don't know. Um, but Manasin is what I'm going to say. Um, they, this guy, uh, he was, it says he's an early disciple. And so that could mean a few things. It could mean that he was actually one of the disciples that was, that was going around with Jesus, like one of the original 120 that was there on Pentecost. It could also mean that he was one of the uh, Christ followers who came to the Lord, who came to follow the Lord and know and believe in him really, really early on after Pentecost when the church started. It could even mean that he was one of the guys who came to the Lord early on, like when Paul and Barnabas were starting their missionary journeys. If it's the first one and he was there from the very beginning, this this would have been a good source for Luke, right, as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to also write the gospel of Luke. Uh, this guy may have been able to tell him um, eyewitness accounts about Christ's ministry on earth. Um, and so uh, let's look at the next few verses here, 17 through 20. And when we had come to Jerusalem, they made it. The brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. They get there, and the brethren, the believers, the elders, they greet them warmly, which would have been, which would have been awesome for them, right? They've been out on these missionary journeys, out on the mission field. They come back to Jerusalem, and the brothers greet them warmly. James is there. He appears to be leading the church. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay? This is the guy who did not believe in Jesus, did not believe that he was God until Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to him, okay? which is the only way I would ever believe my brother was God too. Um, but that's, that's who this James is, and he's apparently sort of the leader of the church at Jerusalem at this time. Um, Paul tells the elders about what happened, what's gone on in their missionary journeys, and all these Gentiles and all these people who have come to the Lord, and when they heard it, they glorified God. 
They're excited, as we should be, okay? This is prescriptive. When you hear that people have gone from spiritual death to life and have followed Jesus, gotten baptized, and so on, you should be super jacked up. When we hear about what's going on with, with Steve Bragg and, and Pastor Alejo Lagos in the Philippines and people coming to know the Lord and people, and people being drawn to him and being saved and being baptized, and we hear about what's going on in Honduras and we have uh, new believers and new baptisms and so on, you should be jacked up, excited. Also, when we have people here who come to the Lord, when we have these baptisms and so on, the feeling that you should have should be one of incredible excitement and joy because you should love the Lord so much that you love these people so much, whether you know them or not, and are just so excited to see them have what you have if you're a follower of Christ, which is forgiveness of sins and life and transformation in him. They were excited. They were excited as they should be. And Paul had seen so many people follow Christ that this was just wonderful, awesome, joyful news to the elders who were overseeing the church in Jerusalem. All right, then James mentions these many myriads of Jewish people who had come to believe in Christ. Now, remember, Paul was trying to make it back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, this Pentecost was actually decades after the Pentecost where the church started. But here we are at Pentecost, and if you'll remember, when the feasts are there, people are coming from all over the world for the feast. All over the world, they're coming in there. And so when James says, look, there's all these myriads of believers here, he's referring to all these people, believers from all over who, who love the Lord Jesus and have come to Jerusalem. And the word myriad can just mean a lot of people without necessarily a number attached to it. But in the Greek, in this instance, it can also mean 10,000. A myriad would be 10,000. How many myriads would be how many 10,000s? So it's possible that James is referring to tens of thousands of believers that would have been in Jerusalem at this time. But he mentions something else. He mentions that these Jewish Christians are zealous for the law. Now, this is a problem because we've seen the difficulties the church has gone through, right? With the Jewish believers coming to Christ but not being able to give up um, the importance or the, or the level of importance that they put on the old ceremonial laws. You remember maybe Peter, when, the, when he has this vision, the blanket comes down, and the Lord says to him, kill and eat, and he says, I've never done anything like that. I would never do that. I would never eat unclean food. It's the Lord telling him to do it, and he's still like, I would never do it. So they hold this very, very, very tightly. And when they come to the Lord, they don't necessarily just give it up. And these believers, all these believers who are here, these Jewish believers, yes, they follow Christ, but they're still very zealous for the law, and this is an issue. There's many, many people who are holding the law in very, very high regard. Remember, many years before Paul had been there in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem council had come up with what the Gentiles needed to do. And it did not include doing all the things in the law. We'll see what they asked them to do here in a second. Um, but they had already ruled on this. It was not the most important thing, and yet there were so many Jews who were still so zealous for the law. So let's see what happens, verse 21 through 25. It says, But they have been informed about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. 
except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Here at the end, again, we see what the Council of Jerusalem Jerusalem had decided concerning the Gentiles or the non-Jewish believers, right? Nothing offered to idols, uh, no blood, nothing strangled, and stay away from sexual immorality. But as to the Jewish people that became believers, there was still this very, very strong thing that was saying you should keep all the customs that we used to keep. Jesus plus all the customs that we used to keep. Uh, Many of them are continuing to do this. Now, I don't think we have any evidence to believe that this accusation that had been made about Paul is true. We've seen what Paul's preaching to people. He's not telling the Jews, don't circumcise your children, don't follow the customs. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't going in and trying to upset the apple cart in that kind of a way. What What he has said is that those things are not necessary for salvation, right? That you do not have to get circumcised and follow the laws to be saved. All you need to be saved is that you confess and repent and believe on Jesus Christ, believe in his resurrection, that he has the power to forgive sins and transform your life. That's what you need. You don't need something more than that. You don't need these customs. But he wasn't saying get rid of them if that was something that they wanted to do and so on, as long as they weren't saying it was necessary for salvation. That's all he could really be accused of, and yet they're accusing him of basically going around saying, get rid of the law, get rid of the Jewish stuff, and so on, which would have been very offensive to them. Very offensive to them. Um, Okay, Uh, so remember this, though, which I find interesting. Remember Paul had Timothy circumcised. Right? So if he was so against all this stuff, remember not that long ago, he took a vow like these guys who we just read about took a vow. It was a Jewish thing. It was a Nazarite vow. If you want to um, hear more about that, I talked about it a few sermons ago when we were in chapter 18. Uh, you can also read number six to find out about this Nazarite vow. And what they're asking him to do here is basically take these guys, um, these four guys who have taken a Nazarite vow, go with them because it's a very Jewish thing to do. Go with them and pay their expenses. If you read in number six about the Nazarite vow, there's certain offerings uh, and sacrifices that had to be made at the end of that vow. And he's saying, look, go pay for these guys so that everybody can see that you're, that you're behind this, that you're still following the customs because you're a Jewish guy and you're not telling people to get rid of it. You're not telling people to get rid of these customs. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here, we read a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul was saying, look, I'm going to become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some, right? That he's going to become relevant. He's going to become relevant to these folks. And that's, of course, what he's doing here by going through this process, listening to the wise counsel of these folks, and going through this process of fulfilling these Jewish traditions so that he can effectively be able to preach and win a hearing for the truth of the gospel. That's why he does it. He doesn't want something to be in the way. This is about being relevant. This, isn't about, uh, this is about not being purposely offensive. Okay, If I can wear jeans to preach here at Acts Church, but in order to go to another church, i got to wear a three-piece suit in order to preach so I don't offend somebody, then so be it. Uh, I don't care. The clothes are not the important thing. Jesus Christ is the important thing. The truth is the important thing. I would not want the clothes I was wearing to cause a distraction when I'm preaching the gospel. That's why I'm wearing a shirt today. I thought shorts and no shirt would be more comfortable. Tiffany said... It's going to be a distraction. I'm like, not for me. Um, (laughs) Seriously, though, Paul is living out here a commitment, right, to do the things, not that are necessary. He doesn't have to go do all this stuff. They're not necessary for him to do in order to be a Christian or to be a good person or whatever, to be a Christ follower, but they're helpful for winning people to the Lord, for getting people, for getting an opportunity, for winning an opportunity to speak the truth. So that's why he does this. So let's see how it works out for him. Verses 26 through 30. It says, Then Paul took the men 
And the next day, having been purified with them, enter the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. It didn't work. Um, he went through this process, but it wasn't enough for them. So we have these Jewish people from Asia. Well, assumedly, these are people from Ephesus. Remember, if you have been around, Paul was in Ephesus for a long time. Right? He, re he reached all of Asia, but the Jews there were not happy with Paul, as they usually weren't. Those that didn't come to Christ usually were. And these guys, so they know Paul was. He's lived in their city for quite a while. They see Paul, and they accuse him of two things. One, of teaching all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, that is the temple. And two, of bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. These are the accusations leveled against Paul. These are serious accusations. Now, if these guys were from Ephesus, they might have known Trophimus, this guy, and maybe they had seen Trophimus with Paul in the city and so assumed or at least tried to accuse Paul of bringing Trophimus into the temple. But neither of these accusations are true. We've already discussed that Paul was not teaching against the law in the way that they're suggesting that he was. He was simply teaching that the law was not the thing that led to salvation. Jesus Christ was. Okay, very different than saying it's bad and so on. In fact, he talks about how the law is important because we would never know our need for Jesus if we didn't know the law and that we were lawbreakers, right? So he's actually not against the law in this kind of way they're saying. But we also know, right, Paul would not have brought Trophimus into the temple. The whole thing he was trying to do was to be all things to all men. The last thing he would do is something purposely offensive when the whole thing was he has his heart to see Jewish people turn to the Lord Jesus. He would never have brought Trophimus into the inner courts of the temple. The penalty for bringing someone into the inner courts of the temple was death. There were actually signs up in the temple, and this is what they read. No foreigners to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death which is a really fancy way of saying if you cross this line, you're dead, right? This was the warning. It was serious, okay? Uh, so they, they, they yell these things out. Everybody grabs Paul. They, they take him. They seize him. They take him out. They shut the doors. Um, so the prophecies are coming true, right? All the things that were said are now coming true. He's got trouble coming. The whole city was disturbed by this uproar. If you've been around for a while, you know that when Paul goes around, he tends to shake things up. And why does he tend to shake things up? Because Jesus, and the name of Jesus, tends to shake things up. The name of Jesus really does shake things up. That's why it's so important to take advantage of every opportunity we have to tell others the good news about him so their lives can change too. And if you're still not sure about all this Jesus stuff and you have questions, call us at 360-885-9000 or send us an email. Use info at axchurchnw.org. And we hope you'll come see us at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington this Sunday morning. Get directions and all the info you need at axchurchnw.org. 
We'd love to meet you and help you find life. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll click on the next episode for more great Bible teaching here on Contemplate.